What's going on, digital wildcatters? Jeez, audio malfunction there. That was my bad. If I right just blew off the out bat. anyone's eardrums, I apologize. The boomer that. sitting here did not blow the technology. My computer is functioning <laughs> properly. Oh, man. Well, Chuck, we just had some breaking news. I saw it on Twitter. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden announces a domestic ban on Russian oil and natural gas imports. We're talking about this, you know, what kind of effect does that have? You know, we don't really import a ton of Russian oil and gas. Massachusetts, our uh, finger of the week, <laughs> Hall of Famer, Senator Warren, uh, her her neck of the woods. They like to import some Russian natural gas LNG. What do you think? Uh, do you think that this is going to have an impact on oil prices this week? So, so I want to be really clear on this because... There is the moral thing to do, and then there is the practical thing to do. And I want to draw a big difference between the two of them. Morally, I think it's correct that we should ban Russian imports. I mean, bad folks. We can have a whole discussion later, and we probably will, because I think we're going to talk about the war this whole show. We can have a discussion on whether economic sanctions actually change behavior of an authoritarian dictatorship. But if we're going to cross the line and say that they do, it's absolutely the right thing to do to ban Russian oil imports, to cajole, badger Europe into joining us. The only problem from the practical side of it is twofold. One, I think it's already happened, right? I mean, everyone I've talked to is not touching Russian oil ban or no ban, right? Because yeah. they didn't know what was going to happen with it. They didn't want to do it. I mean, look how much shit Shell took for buying that one tanker full of uh, full of oil. Now, they got a great discount. Shell actually had to come out and apologize. I mean, I think the story was the tanker was already there. It was already unloading. They just stole some money from Russia because they could. But at the end of the day, they got so much grief for it, they had to come out and apologize for it. So I think it's already happened. There are a couple of refineries in Europe that are still under long-term contracts taking oil from Russia. But for the most part, it's already happened. So I think... Yeah. The price run-up you see is just the practical of the ban happening. The second thing, practically speaking, is oil's a closed system in the world. It just is. If we're not going to buy Russian oil, they're going to sell it to the Chinese. The Chinese will buy less of the Saudi oil and we'll buy that. Yeah. And so it really just comes down to where that price will equilibrium. Will the Chinese sit there and say, Russia, hey, we'll buy it for 30 bucks off? Maybe. In which case, we're going to pay more because the Saudis will come back and say, well, you're going to have to pay us more for it. So there will be some subsidy from the U.S. and, and Europe to, to, in effect, support this ban. But at the end of the day, there's going to be a buyer for the oil. That being said, it's really interesting. Just the economic effects within Russia, you know, they use about four million barrels a day. So where does that demand go? Yeah. And two, the economic hardship we've placed on them the ruble falling and all how much can they truly continue to supply so that's interesting so i think morally it's the right thing to do but practically speaking we shouldn't see a real f effect of it outside of just some initial hysteria trading type stuff yeah my thing is is do it or don't but oil prices are increasing based on the fact that hey there could be sanctions placed and so if prices are increasing, but you don't actually take the action of having sanctions and all you're doing is bankrolling Russia's operation, right? 
oil prices are increasing and they're able to export and, and uh, capitalize on that. So my thing is if you're going to do it, do it. So it's good to see finally a ruling on the U.S. I don't know how much of an effect that actually has from a physical molecule perspective. Um, well, and as soon as I say it should have no effect, oil is up 7.62% this morning and uh, the 12-month strip is actually up 5%. Jeez. Yeah. But yeah. So crazy times. Um, also just talking about commodity markets. I mean, metals are skyrocketing as well. I saw this morning that they had to shut down nickel markets uh, because of a massive potential short squeeze. And so you're seeing nickel prices soar, lithium, cobalt. Commodities doing what commodities do. You know well, I mean? don't, don't, and I mean, and another one that we need to watch that there's been some press on, but is really important and it's going to have second order effects is wheat prices. I mean, Ukraine exports a lot of wheat, Russians export a lot of wheat, particularly to the Middle East. Last time we saw a run up in wheat prices, we had the Arab Spring. So, I mean, don't think that if wheat costs a lot more in the Middle East that we're not going to see issues there, too. And guess what happens in the Middle East? They produce a lot of oil that goes out. And strife there is never good for oil price either. So, so I was talking this morning about just bullwhip effects and what happens when you have the economy closed down for the better part of one to two years you think that we're going to come out of that just unscathed? I mean, you're going to have these bullwhip effects in commodities markets. And I think that hopefully we're all taking a lesson from this, that we should never lock down our economy again, because I think that this is going to be catastrophic for uh, certain countries, certain demographics of people around the world with increasing energy prices, increasing food prices. I mean, it's, it's bad. Tim and I were over here talking about how much it costs to fill up a tank of gas this morning in Houston. It's much worse over in California. So now, you know, people that make $30,000 a year, which I believe is close to the median salary in the U.S., how are they supposed to pay to get around? How are they supposed well, to pay to feed their families when food prices are increasing? I don't know if you've been watching what Pickering's now doing on, he's been tweeting about this. When he fills up his car now, he looks at the other pumps to see, and he's seeing a lot of stopping at $10, $15, i.e. I'm not filling up my pump. I'm only buying so much mm -hmm. gasoline. He also goes inside now and gets a receipt and he talks to the clerk and gets that same type of data. Now this is anecdotal, but over the last two weeks, he's actually seen a shift of filling up your tank to actually certain amounts. So he thinks demand destruction's happening. Now, that being said, when you look at the, I forget the name of the source that publishes gasoline usage, they said last Sunday was 8% higher than the Sunday before. And maybe that was filling up your tank in advance of yeah. prices, probably, prices rising. But probably gas buddy. Pickering. Pickering will tell you that demand destruction is happening now as we speak. And, you know, that's so let's go back real quick to the ban. And then I want to go back to demand destruction. So we'll kind of wander around. If we're going to put a ban on Russian oil, I'm coming to commander in chief, leader of the free world, frack slap. Do we then put a ban on Chinese solar and wind equipment? Is it the same thing? I mean, that's what. Do we do it after China invades Taiwan? That's what I was talking about on Twitter this morning. It's like, 
there's a lot of people that say if we weren't dependent on oil and gas, we wouldn't be in this situation. It's like, how's that any different from our dependence on metals and renewable production from other entities? And Chinese and coal. Mainly, Take it all the way to Chinese yeah, coal that builds all that mainly stuff. Mainly China. And so that's, you know, people, I don't, I don't think that people understand the dynamics, both in energy production, but then also in uh, geopolitical um, context and then supply chains. But we have to have a diverse energy mix that includes oil and gas. It includes coal. It includes nuclear. It includes wind, solar, geothermal, hydro. We need all of it. The reason that we need all of it is because we can't de be dependent on a country like China or Russia to energize our nation. I was thinking about this the other day. This is kind of left field, but I haven't got to put this thought out into the ether yet. But I was thinking about what if we did transition 100%. Our grid is running on 100% renewables. We're running on electric vehicles, which imagine – this isn't realistic. We can't do this, but imagine that we were running 100% on renewables and electrified everything. And then you have China and Russia that are fine staying on hydrocarbons. They're fine using oil and gas and coal. Then they decide to invade us. They got tanks, they got planes, and they have the fuel to power them. What do we have? Solar tanks? Like how, like how the fuck are we supposed to fight a war and fight back? Aren't we just weakening our... Uh, our national security by not having those fuels and resources to fend off countries like Russia and China. Like this thing it gets deep. It's like an onion. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. We don't, we don't have the, the technology. And the other thing that we need to keep in mind is transition is a farce. I mean, every incremental fuel source that we have renewables, et cetera, just, satisfies our growing demand for energy we're not transitioning to anything you look back 25 years from now or 25 years ago 79 percent of our energy came from burning hydrocarbons today it's like 80 percent. yeah so i mean we haven't transitioned to to anything and we really have to keep in mind that quality of energy matters i mean if the wind doesn't blow if the sun's not there if it's not transport transportable there are consequences to that. And I think that's what's totally been missing from the... Uh, what's funny, those people call you a renewable hater if you bring up the point that renewables are intermittent and you need battery capacity. And we are nowhere near <laughs> having commercial battery capacity that we need. So I, I think people, if, people on all sides of energy, which it's unfortunate, energy has become politicized, but people on all sides of it don't think about it objectively. And when you point out... Uh, certain things people just call you a hater or they call you an oil and gas boy or they call you you know any other amount of names i was called on twitter i had people tell me i was pure evil which i don't know maybe i am i mean i, I to, think like, so I a, but it's not because you like energy twitter, i need a twitter a on account pure evil frax <laughs> <laughs> yeah because nobody'd figure that out <laughs> but no but let's go back to the 130 dollar oil you know, the, the hard thing we have in looking at $130 oil is what happens to demand? When do we start having destruction on that point like we were talking about? Here's some stuff just to think about. We don't really have a good analogy where we can point to that says, aha, by this metric, we saw demand destruction. 
I mean, we saw oil prices this high back in 08, 09. We went into a massive recession. I mm -hmm. mean, the Great Recession, but that was really driven by credit default, you know, the home mortgage market imploding and all. So it's hard to say that was oil's fault. So on one hand, you can just say the eyeball test says $130 oil is too high. Tim's talking about filling up his car. Buddy's emailing me from California with a picture. Everyone's posting pictures on like yeah. on social media. $125. Gas People are feeling it. Yeah. Yeah. So the eyeball test says something's coming. The flip side is, you know, energy uh, consumption is now kind of four to five percent of income. It used to be as high as 10 and 15 percent. So maybe it doesn't matter. People are richer. But I still think that's a uh, that's a hard story well, to sell. Yeah, I mean, if you look historically, recessions in the United States are preceded by spikes in oil prices. So you can, you know, debate whether the Great Recession was caused by a spike in oil prices or if it was uh, credit defaults um, on Wall Street. But regardless, it's a pretty good indicator um, of recessions. But also, you know, you talk about one hundred thirty dollar oil. That doesn't really mean shit in today's terms because yeah, we had $130 oil back in, you know, back in 10 years ago, but that's not inflation adjusted. And look at how much money we've printed over the last two years. So really $130 oil back in uh mid two thousands was, you know, $200 oil today or whatever that number is. Don't quote me on that. I don't have that number in front of me, but it's higher than what it was. Math back is then, hard. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that actually brings up kind of the last point I had here on the list is it may not be oil prices that lead to demand destruction. It may be all of inflation that just leads to a recession. You yeah, know, I think that's highly probable. As someone that lives on a fixed portfolio, I mean, I'm telling you this, I'm feeling it just looking at the American Express card bill. I mean, you go out and eat dinner and it used to be 10, 12 bucks. Now it's 20. Yeah. I mean, this this stuff is is real and it's going to have. You look at rising cost of living um, and home prices, rising food prices, rising energy prices. I think the only thing that's been deflationary is like the price of TVs and consumer <laughs> electronics. But even that with uh, chip shortages um, has probably been affected some. So, yeah, I mean, it's everything. And I'm sure you look at median wages, they haven't increased to keep up with inflation. And I know you and uh, I think you and Dan talked about this, but you're like, you know, you look at someone my age, 32 years old, I've never encountered inflation. Yeah, I don't know what this is. I don't know what it like, what it feels like or what it's about. And so I think that a lot of young folks like myself are probably about to get a, a rude awakening. To and, the, and I think the thing that's going to shock you guys about it, because we can talk economic theory all we want, get into the details. At the end of the day, the way you break inflation is such that interest rates are more than inflation. Because mm -hmm. if inflation's running 10% and interest rates are 2%, I borrow stuff at 2%, buy assets that inflate at 10%, I'm making money. I do that all day long. So interest rates, if inflation's running 10%, got to be 11, 12%. And that's mm -hmm. painful. I mean, home mortgages had 17% rates, uh, mortgage rates in the late 70s, early 80s to break inflation. So that's wild. Yeah. I that's mean, another shoe to drop here that we haven't seen yet. And what are the second order effects of hiking up rates 
that aggressively going from you know parts of the world that have had negative rates to all of a sudden we need 12 15% interest rates let's let's start at the top the federal government if their cost of borrowing today is one and a half percent across the the other thing that the federal government has done over the last 20 or 30 years and i don't have the stats on it but they went from issuing 100 year bonds 30 year bonds to now it's all six months they're just rolling it because shorter duration was always cheaper yeah so that's how they kind of stayed within if you want to jokingly say they had a budget but they did that so we're having to refinance the debt way more often than we used to to get cheaper rates. Well, if you jack those rates up, guess what? It's going to be a lot more. So the federal government, I've seen stats and I, I wish I had these and we can go look these up and I'll tweet them out later, but it's something ridiculous. Like at a 10% interest rate, half of the revenue that the government takes in all uh, during the year would go to pay interest on the debt. So we have a possible implosion up there, which is not good. Then you have every company, and at the end of the day, stock prices are based somewhat on a uh, multiple of earnings ratio, yeah. right? Your ability to ger generate earnings is what you're worth. If interest starts cutting away at your uh, cost of capital, I mean, I've run enough models in my life to know that if the cost of equity is 15 and the cost of your debt's five, your weighted average cost of capital at a 50-50 blend is 10%, go jack that uh, cost of capital up to 20%, you're worth a third of what you were worth beforehand. So that's not good. Uh, the only person that makes out okay in that scenario is the old person that has a portfolio of bonds that now is clipping, you know, 20% coupons. So I got that to look <laughs> forward to. But anyway, yeah, no, it's, it's really scary. So again, let's go back to you being commander in chief leader of the free world. What do we do about this? What should our industry be doing right now? Don't put that on me, Ricky Bobby. About, man? <laughs> not the leader of the free world. I'm just the leader of, I don't even know what I'm the leader of. Just <laughs> That's all I got. Yeah. I mean, look, here's the thing. There's been a lot of what I've seen on Twitter and other social media platforms are people attacking the American oil and gas industry for not producing enough oil say, oh, hey, the Fed say that you ha guys have 9,000 undrilled permits. Chuck, you and I were just talking about this this morning, talking about you know Pioneer and some of the other independent companies. It doesn't matter if someone wants to pick up 15 rigs and start popping holes in the ground. They can't. There isn't the amount of rigs and crews. I'm talking to people that are in OFS and EMP, and they're just saying, hey, we can't get rigs the service companies are saying, you know, we're readjusting rates every like every week now. So your costs are rising. You know, you have very deep supply chain issues with steel and pipe and things of that nature. So for me, it's like you can't even you can't ramp up production even if you wanted to. And then you and I also know that you know, you have steep drop off on uh, decline rates on shale wells. So you pop these holes in the ground and you can get a lot of supply on uh, on the market right away. But then it's going to drop off pretty quick. So Cause the, the only reason we're still at 11 million barrels a day of production is we had a bunch of ducks drilled mm -hmm. and we've been popping ducks and they're 
basically gone now. Yeah, so There's you have these, duck you have these ducks, though. which if you don't know what a duck is, a duck is a drilled but uncompleted well. So essentially they drilled it, they have casing in the ground, and then all they have to do when they want to bring that well online is they get a frack crew, a frack spread to come out there, complete the well, and they can bring the well online. And so you have this large inventory of those ducks just Cause, sitting Because just when oil prices go low, rigs are cheap, a lot of companies will just drill the well, but they won't complete it because they don't want to bring it online at $30. Yeah, oil, the majority of your costs save it for the future. Yeah, the majority of your costs is in the completion, right? And it doesn't make economic sense for them to spend all that money to complete the well in a low commodity environment. So they'll drill the well and just leave it there until it makes sense to complete it. And so you had this uh you had this inventory and now that inventory's started to burn through and I'm not sure how many ducks we have in the United States today. But yeah, I think that we really have to build out our pipeline infrastructure, our LNG infrastructure. You know, a lot of people are calling for building Keystone Pipeline. Like that doesn't even matter because one, if you start building it out, it's going to take years to build it. And then guess what? The oil sands that were supposed to provide Keystone Pipeline with oil, those projects didn't happen because there was no takeaway capacity, right? So um, you can see how all of this starts getting backed up into the system. And I don't know what the what the right answer is. You said earlier that, you know, when we're talking about ramping up rigs, you said, why is a company like a Pioneer incentivized to do that? Because the only way that you can lock down rigs and frack spreads is now you have to start committing to long-term con contracts. Say, hey, we'll use you guys for three years and we'll pay a premium on that. But does that make sense for Pioneer if, you know, you look at the forward curve and we have backwardation and you're like, I don't want to be paying premiums on these rigs and, and frack spreads three years from now. I mean, the the trail of death and EMP is littered with long-term rig contracts, right? I mean, looks good now. Let's go ahead and sign this up. But at the end of the day, things change, you know. They change quickly. <laughs> they, they change quickly. Um you know, the, the one thing I would say is I don't know that I have a really good solution uh, here other than what you just said about Keystone. We need to go ahead and get that approved, get it started building. So in seven or eight years, when we're talking about the next crisis, we at least have that oil on the way here. Because what we can't do is the Canadians, and I don't fault the Canadians for this at all, they're going to send that oil to China. They're going to build a pipeline to the West Coast and ship it to China if we don't take it. We should be the we should be taking every bit of energy from Mexico and Canada that we can. Yeah, here's the thing: when you talk about bullwhip effects, this isn't a one-time deal. Bullwhip effect: it's going to go down, it's going to go up, it's going to go down, it's going to go up, and so we should start doing the things today that we know are going to make life easier in eight years. So we need to start building out all the LNG infrastructure import export terminals we need pipelines we need i mean why solar, we do right? not have a pipeline from the marcellus and or the utica into massachusetts is ridiculous it does not make sense yeah. i mean there there's just no way around that it does not make sense massachusetts importing lng from places like trinidad and russia and they have the marcellus 200 miles away from them that's nothing for a pipeline to transport yeah. natural gas, clean and Trinidad, American energy. And Trinidad is arguably a friend. So it's not like that's a, a ruthless dictator we're buying for. But I bet Europe wishes they could have that LNG. 
Yeah. And we got it sitting in America. Yeah. And I mean, it's also crazy that we export LNG from Texas. The Jones Act is, I haven't found one good reason for the Jones Act. If someone can educate me and enlighten me on why the Jones Act was created and why it's beneficial to America, but it's just crazy that, you know, you have exports, LNG exports going out of uh, Houston, out of the Gulf of Mexico we're sending it all around the world and then you got lng imports coming into massachusetts it's just like you know i think that one america can be lng providers or natural gas providers not only to ourselves but to other countries in the world and yeah to your point i mean sure europe would love to have nat gas flowing in from countries other than russia during this time yeah, no, and then the final thing I say, and I, I had some dialogue on Twitter yesterday, so we don't need to beat a dead horse on this, but I do think it's very important for us as an industry hitting $130 oil. There are people actually out there suffering, struggling to fill their gas tanks, struggling with heating costs. You know, we're at the tail end of winter, but still, and we've got to be sympathetic to that. And I'm not talking about we need to go out and hug environmentalists that are trying to put us out of business. I'm saying there are real Americans struggling with it. And our persona historically has not been very warming to those in those type situations. We come off like truculent, petulant teenagers, and it turns people off. And if we want to win the narrative back, there's a whole middle here of people that are uneducated on industry Let's look like the reasonable adult in the room. Let's look like the caring individual in the room. And we'll have a shot with those people. Because if we're just going to go sling mud at the Greta's of the world, we're not going to gain anything. We may feel better about it, but we're not going to gain anything. You can just call me out next time if you want for my tweet about Greta. Which my tweet wasn't about Greta. My tweet was making fun of people that listen, listen to, to Greta and <laughs> develop yeah. energy policy around no, it. No, we definitely, we definitely need the frack slap flamethrower meme guy out there in the uh in the echoes <laughs> chamber <laughs> rallying the troops but at the end of the day i mean the leaders of the majors the leaders of our large independents need to be thoughtful come off as in empathetic and come off as rational folks trying to help the solution because at the end of the day we just historically have not acted like that in this situation and this is and everybody that's going to throw shade at me for saying this i'm on your team I want us to be have a seat at the table and be part of the rational discussion of how we make this industry better. I'm just saying showing up with a flamethrower is not going to do it. Yeah, for sure. Douglas had a comment. So this gas is going to power uh, is going to power plants. What about the nuclear race? And I think that that's also interesting, the implications from this, too, because if Russia starts bombing and destroying Ukrainian nuclear plants, that's not very incentivizing to the West to build out nukes, right? If they right. see that they can just be uh, used as a target. And I'm very pro-nuke. I love uh, nuclear energy. But I think that that's really interesting to see how this war kind of affects the sentiment around nuclear as well. Then uh, had another comment that said Europe's paying $30 per MCF of gas right now, which... Um, I don't doubt that. I haven't seen I haven't seen a number of what they're paying right now, but that doesn't surprise me. Um, just given everything that's happening right now, and the bad thing is, like, I don't see it slowing down. Like, I no. don't see an end in sight for it, and that's you know really uh, kind of terrifying. And to your point, Chuck, 
you know, I've been uh, taking some victory laps for a call that I had. You know, I said oil was going to $200 about a year and a half ago, two years ago. And, you know, I take my victory laps because, like, back then no one was bullish on oil and gas, much less did they think it was going to $200. So that's just kind of me, like, gloating that I was right when everyone was bearish. But at the end of the day, a lot of people – that hurts a lot of people. And that's what I've been preaching about in podcasts and, you know, Twitter posts and LinkedIn posts over the last couple of years is talking about the energy transition in a pragmatic manner to where we don't put society at risk because I feel, you know, I have a lot of empathy for people, you know, just in America, you know, this isn't even talking about people around the world that live in deep poverty, but, you know, just your average American that makes, you know, 30, $40,000 a year that's now having to spend 200 bucks a week on gas. I mean, the implications are pretty catastrophic. So hopefully this is a wake up call to the world of, we need to have smart energy policy that includes coal, natural gas, oil, nuclear, renewables such as wind, solar, hydro. I mean, we need all of it. Energy well, demand continues, to your point earlier, energy demand continues to increase. Like we're not in an energy transition. We're in a energy addition. We're adding solar and wind uh, capacity to the energy mix, but it's not displacing anything. And we need every ounce of energy that we can get right now. So you know, build it all. And well, and I'll say, I'll say this just to be fair and be balanced on it. We ignore at our own peril, the fact that CO2 has gone from 300 parts per million to 425 parts per million over the last 125 years. And temperature has gone up one and a half percent. I mean, you know, you talk sports, the eyeball test says, Hey man, that's something to watch. You know, I can tell, and we need to watch it and we need to be thoughtful about it. But at the same time, we need to be cognizant of the fact that your life expectancy doubles when you start burning hydrocarbons versus wood and dung. Mm -hmm. Quality of life goes up immeasurably under that situation. And so we probably need to be watching CO2. We need to be thoughtful about it, but we need to be rational about how we do it because we can destroy the world by spending $30 trillion a year trying to decarbonize versus being able to get it done at two or three trillion dollars a year. That matters. That's what the rate of acceleration matters. Because so. I will never understand from the other side, because at the end of the day, higher energy prices mean people die. Yeah. It just does. And conversely, when authoritarian dictators control your energy supply, people die. And why are those deaths okay, but it's not right to have a death sometime in the future because of global warming? There needs to be a balance and we need to be a trustworthy partner in this so that we can credibly give real solutions that guide us on this path. hundred uh, percent. Ryan Baker had a good question for you. He said, are y'all hearing any rumors about capital projects for gas transmission lines yet? Um, so here's what, here's what Jeff Davies and I talked about two weeks ago when he co-hosted with me, when you were out, Colin is, you know, the FERC, just changed their 24-year policy on approving projects. And I'll get the details wrong, but the spirit is basically you need to include environmental impact in that and the like. And Jeff, who is a liberal Democrat, you know, to his credit, said there will probably not be another gas pipeline built in America under these uh, restrictions. So you've got a three to two FERC 
uh, Democrats versus Republicans. And until there's a replacement, you're, you're just not going to see a lot of gas pipelines, if any. That's his take. And he knows a lot more about midstream than I do. That's crazy. Yeah, I don't think there's anything noble about divesting capital from energy infrastructure when people are struggling uh, with high energy prices. So hopefully there will be some remediation there um, and we can fix that. So, um, but that's a good question to lead us into. We actually had some oil and gas M&A. Why don't we roll into that? You got a clip for it? I got a clip. I actually had a war clip, but we'll just tweet that one out. So uh, let's go into oil oil eminent you like that highlander there can only be one <laughs> all right broken record department oasis whiting merge and a multi-billion dollar deal two public companies this is the Bakken. As we've been talking about, we've seen this a lot in Colorado and the DJ Basin. Look, there needs to be one producer in the Bakken. So this makes a lot of sense. You're going to have a lot in the way of synergies. I think Whiting alone, 53% of the new company, Oasis alone, 47 of it. You'll cut a bunch in synergies and blah, 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 blah. Both stocks were up, but that could have been just on oil price. This is like the most. This is the broken this record. This is the most low energy delivery of a story I've ever heard. Like because Chuck's like is, monotone, is, just like. Well, this is we're gonna do. We're Chuck gonna, does not want to be here reading this right now. <laughs> did, did you ever see Krusty the Clown on the Simpsons? The Simpsons, where he's got that just standard. I wholeheartedly endorse this product. You know, Simpsons that's kind of what this is. Five years before. This is before public me. mergers. I mean, this is gonna happen. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna get down. We're gonna have one company in the Bakken, one in the DJ probably about 10 in the Permian. And that's what the world's going to look like uh, until new capital comes in. Yeah. I think um, that's just been broken record for the last two yeah. years, like you alluded to, but I do think that M&A gets a little bit more interesting with skyrocketing commodity prices. So I think that it can liven up a bit, but yeah, widening so Oasis, have- it's um I mean, both of those companies have been shorted heavily by the EFT community. So it's, we yeah. should have, that should have been like shotgun wedding. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, they both declared bankruptcy, cleaned up their balance sheet, came out, probably overpaid for some stuff. And now they've merged. <laughs> yeah. uh, the one thing, one interesting thing I did hear from somebody that is a high level M&A uh, person at a large company and is a thoughtful person, you know, buying stuff has been frowned upon. Basically, the capital markets have said, don't drill, capital discipline, don't go buy stuff. You know, we want you sending back dividends and maintaining production, right? That's been the narrative. I've heard that three or four large guys may try to make acquisitions. Now, this was this was a week or two ago. Who knows with Russia ban and all that? Probably the uncertainty pushes us off. But I have heard three or four of the larger folks are going to say screw it because they've got these big cash balances uh, sitting on sitting on the uh, balance sheet. They're going to go make acquisitions and just see what how the market reacts. Mm-hmm. And if the market reacts favorably, it's off to the races. You'll have M&A cash buyers like you haven't seen in a long time. If they hate it, they're going to hope 
that uh, the market forgets about it in six months. Yeah. So that there's going to be some some tiptoeing into the water on that front. Be interesting to see if that actually happens because now every deal we've seen is like this: stock for stock. Yeah. You're taking stock and it's just more of the same. Yeah. Be interesting to see if somebody actually cuts a check for something. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, I want to give a shout out. We had a uh, geothermal deal go through from my buddies at uh, Criterion Energy Partners. So Denny and uh, Sean, co-founders, came on Oil & Gas Startups podcast a while back. They're both oil guys, so they have a really cool story and have a cool thesis around geothermal and they actually uh, just partnered up with Patterson UTI Drilling, uh, which is, if you don't know, just really large oil and gas uh, drilling company. And so uh, congrats to those guys. Love seeing uh, the oil industry. You know, you asked me earlier, like, what do we do to solve this oil or this energy problem? And you have oil guys and oil companies going out there to figure out, hey, can we make geothermal a uh, commercial energy source? So uh, congrats to those guys. There wasn't any details in the uh and the press release, maybe we'll get them on the show to come talk about it sometime soon. Now, our favorite uh, part of the show, we're going to we're going to go a little bit out of on a limb with this one. So here we are. Finger of the week. Give us a story on this finger of the week. <laughs> okay. First, I texted that to someone and they texted back. That looks like Father Chuck about to provide a blessing. <laughs> that is not Father Chuck. That is Farman Salmanov, who in 1961 defied the Soviet government and went to Siberia and drilled for oil. He discovered at 2,200 feet a gusher and texted back to Khrushchev, I found oil, that is it. So that's such up a until- baller. That's such a baller message, I found oil, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very Russian thing, it right? Is. I shall crush him. <laughs> but no, at the end of the day, up until that point, the geologic society of the Soviet Union or whatever they were called had dubbed uh, the Siberian Peninsula as barren of oil. And mm. so literally- this is the fucker that found oil for Russia and he's the one <laughs> causing the whole mess. So to this guy, great technical achievement, but screw you, man. Finger of the week. <laughs> this guy's in his grave. Like He thought he did some great technological uh, innovation discovering oil for Russia. And now he's got some two dudes on a podcast <laughs> cursing him for it. <laughs> in Houston, Texas. I don't even think you roll over in your grave. If we give you finger of the week. It's kind of like, All right, whatever. All right, guys. So that wraps up this week's show. Appreciate you guys tuning in. We'll be back next Tuesday, 1030 uh, Central Time, like we are every Tuesday. Actually, Chuck's not going to be here. He's going to be in Paris. So I'll have a guest with me on the show. Don't know who that's going to be yet. Um, Just quick uh, announcement. If you haven't grabbed a ticket to Empower, our Bitcoin mining conference in uh, Houston, March 30th through 31st, make sure to get a ticket. Um, It's going to be a great time. Have a lot of oil and gas companies coming, renewables, miners, uh, people from finance, uh, legal, regulatory, and we're just going to have a lot of beer and content and music. So it's going to be a good time down and if in you want, uh, Houston. And if you want more of an overview of what's going to go on there, 
why we're so excited about it. Quite frankly, why, how we came up with the conference. Tomorrow's Chuck Yates needs a job. My guest is a frack slap on that. And we talk about Bitcoin mining and the convergence with energy. Oh, yeah. All right, guys. Uh, reach out to me and Chuck. Let us know if you have any feedback. Appreciate y'all tuning in. We'll catch y'all next week.